Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's season four, episode four, and we're hosting a friend cast and spilling the tea with my girl, May. Who? Stina May, for me, is Christina Smith the incomparable principal flute of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. We were colleagues from 1991 to 1999. Fielding questions is co-producer Alan J. Tomasetti, and fielding the vibe is Justine Sedke. I appreciate Christina being in the podcast, and we'll feature some flashbacks from the ASO. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. I'm so glad you're here. My dear friend, Christina Smith, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited to be here. I'm hugging you. I'm hugging you back. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) We have so much to talk about. You were incredibly young. You were 19. Can I say that? And I was 26. (laughs) Also very young, yes. Okay. And when you joined the Atlanta Symphony on the exact same day as I did, (laughs) um, what was that like? Was there a struggle a little bit with being a young principal flute player stepping into this role? And then you had a 26-year-old who I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to play a concerto. So I was 26. I was super uh, kind of my own person. I didn't, you know, was, there was no jealousy right away. So I I just have to ask you, what were you feeling? You know, when I look back to that time, what I realize now is that I don't even think I knew really what I was getting into because I was so young. My whole experience had been my school orchestra, my youth orchestras, isn't this fun? And you know, the magnitude of having a principal job in a major orchestra, I don't even think it really registered the workload and the pressure and all of that. It hadn't occurred to me what that schedule was going to be like because of naivety, really, and, and youth. So I just remember being kind of in a fog, just learning and learning and learning all of this repertoire that Many, many pieces, the very first time I played it was in the ASO, in the principal flute chair. Some of them, you know, that wonderful European tour that you and I both started with our very first year in the orchestra, playing in music drawing, playing these pieces for the very first time was in that situation. So it was really trial by fire. But the, you know, the luxury, luxury we have as we are older players and we spend decades doing the same thing is that you do start to build a wisdom and a a confidence. And um, that has been very gratifying. I remember that tour. I was nuts because I had lost my mother not a few months before. I remember that. 
she never knew I got the job in the Atlanta Symphony. So I just was bonkers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that time in your life was, you know, just so much upheaval with the new job and losing your mother. I, re- I do remember that. Mm-hmm. We both came in with uh, lots of newness, I remember. Yes, yes. So you were in Curtis at the time. Did you go back and finish your degree? I did not. <laughs> I I thought about it and dreamed about doing that, especially my first five or six years in my job in the ASO. But I just realized I I did not have the time to do that. And um, I guess I have no regrets. Although I will I would say to most of my students. Um, you know, finish your, your degree, finish your, finish your education. Um, that's always my advice to people. In my case, um, it was so unusual to be offered a job like this after only two years of college. It wouldn't have been waiting for me, obviously, if I had finished my degree. Um, so now I don't really look back. And of course, the, the um, education in, in uh, my case that I've received is all like on the job training. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. I know so many CEOs that said they dropped out of business school because they realized they already had a business. Right, right. So there you were, you're already sitting in the chair. Uh, there was an age gap, not between us, but between you and Someone sitting on your left in the principal oboe chair, someone sitting uh, in the in the clarinet and the bassoon chair. How did you feel that age gap? And was it, you know, a struggle or did you, you know, did you tend to kind of befriend everyone and like be yourself? And, you know, because I was just off stage. We always played at different times and I always played with different people. So one of the questions from the producers is, did you struggle with the age gap? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and on my right, my second flutist is actually older than my dad. <laughs> right? So, so yes, a big age gap. But I would say, um, you know, when you are a young person, you kind of don't realize what you don't know, right? And so when I... <laughs> When I see my my new colleagues in the orchestra who are joining the orchestra, they're in their early 20s. And, you know, now I'm three plus decades into this. And I I look at them and I'm just thinking, like, they don't know what they don't know. right? But And that was me. Of course, that was me. I didn't know what I didn't know. But I will say that the colleagues I was surrounded with, especially, I would say, our second flutist, Paul Britton, who I sat next to for 21 years, I learned more from him about music, orchestral playing. The guy is so, so smart. And he really ultimately just had my back. He supported me. I'm so incredibly grateful for that. And in general, colleagues, I mean, I think they wanted me to succeed. So they treated me very, very well. And I didn't feel a sense of any kind of age discrimination or judgment. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, but I'm just really grateful for the way that I was welcomed and supported when I started my career here.
I know that I was supporting you so much just based on what I was learning from you, listening to you. I used to say Christina Smith came out of the womb playing in an orchestra and, you know, (laughs) flute wise, pretty much. Yeah. You know, you came out of the womb, which is probably 10, 12 years, right? (laughs) Eight eight to 10 years into playing the flute, you're sitting in the chair. Uh, Me too. Right. So I, um, people say, how did you go from freelancing and then playing in a major symphony and now you're teaching, but you have a solo career, you know, how do you do the, all that? And I, there's, it's, I have three words. It's all music. Oh, Amy, I just love that. And I'll just say right back at you. Yeah. Um, meeting you and working with you and having this three plus decade relationship with you has been such an inspiration for me and that I, you know, I have my high school students all audition for your studio because I just believe so strongly in, in your, your work, your teaching, your magnificent playing and what an inspiration it's been for me to have you in my life as this person who's really done it all and had a vision for what you wanted your career to look like and you just did it, you know, and, and the vision part of it is so important. And I just, I really, really admire that. Well, thank you, honey. Uh, what I learned from you was how to play in tune. I remember I bought a different flute <laughs> to kind of get along with everyone in the orchestra. Uh, I remember being told uh, after a Mozart concerto one week, someone told me you were sharp in the Mozart piano concerto last week. Did you go off and have a solo or something? (laughs) And I did. I used to run out of town and go play somewhere and then come back and have this vibrato that was, or, or this pitch that was just so on top of like the, uh, it was, I was sharp queen. And so playing in the Atlanta symphony, I felt like I was chopped off at the ankles and, and I had lowered my, I had lowered my sense of pitch (laughs) and I learned pitch from you fingerings and oh gosh remember we talk about the lower lip and we talk about uh, Jean-Pierre Rampal and we would just kind of school together in a way we'd say yeah this works and that works and I'll just never forget you never missed afternoon of a fawn I used to have to play afternoon of a fawn at 8 30 in the morning at nowhere Georgia Right. (laughs) And you would play afternoon of a fun at 8 p.m. in the main hall. And every single time you'd nail it, you just nailed, you were queen of nailing everything. I just learned so much. So there's two words I, I will also preach consistency and endurance. And those two words you have in spades. How do you think you learned that? Just fear? That is such an unbelievable compliment coming from you. You know, I'll say, I I won't say fear, but I will say the era of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra that you and I joined in, which was the very early nineties. Right. And yeah, they go through eras, right? Yeah. The era we, we lived through was one that I would describe as one word and it's discipline. So the orchestra had this unbelievable discipline. We had a music director who, whose end game really was playing perfectly together, playing perfectly in tune, playing an unbelievable gamut of dynamics, playing everything absolutely 
perfectly, right? So, and sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that really was the end game. It was, and it taught us so much. It did. And I'll say that that, uh, that used to kind of irritate me as a young person, like, oh, I don't feel like I can really play or really express anything because, you know, I have to do everything so perfectly. But now as an older player, I look back and I think, I am so grateful that the beginning of my career had this required discipline because I do see some of the younger players in the orchestra now who join, who are joining an orchestra that doesn't really prioritize that kind of discipline. And they, you know, they, sometimes things can kind of be more of a free for all, you know, but I'm actually glad that I began my career with that kind of orchestral discipline. It definitely came from the vibration of what was going on in the Atlanta Symphony in the 1990s. And I'm very proud of the recordings that we made during that decade for the Telarc label, many Grammy-winning recordings and lots of standard repertoire that I was so fortunate to get to record with the orchestra. I'm very, very proud of that legacy. So do you remember the recording session of the Grammy award-winning album, The Bells by Rachmaninoff? And on the flip side was the B side was John Adams harmonium. Yes, I do. Of course. (laughs) The bells went off without a hitch. Yeah. He gets up on the podium for the John Adams piece. He sits down on the stool and he shakes his head. (laughs) He says, well, you're all going to have to help me here. There's some five, there's a lot of time things going on. It goes, oh, it just kept going. He said, you know, you got to help me stick with me. I kind of, he kind of confessed he was nervous. (laughs) I'll never forget seeing Robert Shaw have a doubting moment. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I don't remember that exact moment, but um, definitely working with Shaw was one of the absolute highlights for me, I know it was for you, just a consummate musician and a consummate human being. Remember that? He used to say uh, all these enunciative things to the choir that would just make it shine that much more. My favorite, I don't know if you have a favorite Robert Chalk boat. Mine is, it's Lord D, God damn it. <laughs> That's a good one. We still have that choir here in Atlanta, and um, now we're headed into this new era with the orchestra where we've hired a new music director, Natalie Stutzmann, who, of course, is a very famous, celebrated um, contralto, and she actually worked with the ASO Chorus last week uh, in her first week as music director designate, and we did the Mozart Requiem and it was just electric, electric because she is a singer and she knows how to direct all of the voices in the choir. Full circle. Sure. It is, isn't it? Okay. So I have a question here. (laughs) It's pretty funny. We have to kind of tell everybody as principal flute, how did you decide what the associate principal was assigned well, should we tell everybody <laughs> you had nothing to do with it? 
again, it's this different eras of an orchestra, right? So the music director that you and I began our careers with, Yoel Levy, was very hands-on and he wanted to uh, assign all of the parts. Now, of course, we don't do that anymore. That ended with with Maestro Levy, and now we've had uh, over 20 years which of what most orchestras do, which is where the principal assigns all of the castings for every part of every piece for the entire season. And in terms of those kinds of decisions, I think every principal kind of does it differently. There are certain principals who always want to play all the Mozart piano concertos, even though it's Traditionally, a lot of times the associate principal would play principal on the concerto or, or the first half of a program. But in general, I, I do listen to what my associate principal would like to play and um, we work it out. And I'm at a point now that I've played almost everything a zillion times. So I'm very, very flexible about what I play and what I don't play. But in general, I do like to play. I think it's important during the regular season subscription weeks that the principal is there. And because this is our job and I, I feel that it's, that that's very, very important. Are there some stories you remember of us playing the orchestra together at all? I mean, I just remember hilarity. <laughs> we definitely had so much fun and there was a lot of humor a lot. We were Vanna White at the at the time. Vanna White was really big, right? And so yeah. we'd play something, and then we'd show with our hand in Vanna White style. We'd we'd go all the way up and down the flute like this is our beautiful <laughs> Vanna White flute. We did. We had a lot of little subtle choreography that made us all laugh and got us through some tough rehearsals. Pat McFarland and the Whoopee Cushion. Oh yes. Oh yeah, that that was not so subtle, was it? How I remember. Mean? So I remember back when you and I were playing in the ASO. We had a fifty-two week season, and we did this whole summer season out of this am beautiful amphitheater, actually in Atlanta, Chastain Park, and we would play, you know, twenty-six pop shows all summer, and it was like ninety-five degrees, ninety-five percent humidity. And there was one year where they decided that the orchestra was going to have this horrible dress code. And they gave us these horrible, was it like a polo shirt or something? It was light blue. A light blue. Oh, I see you even remember the color. It was light blue. I'll never forget. I have a picture. And I could not stop laughing at one of the first rehearsals or the first concerts because you showed up and had taken a pair of scissors and cut off the bottom of the shirt to make it more fashionable. And I loved it. And I could not stop laughing. I never got called in for it either. Well, it was a big improvement to the uniform. That's for sure. Exactly. That's why I never got called in. <laughs> exactly. I just make too much sense sometimes. I know, especially fashion sense. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, okay, there's another quite profound story that I remember of having a doubter of me and my future. So I'm there and I'm looking at the board and I hear this voice and it was another person saying, what are you doing here? 
kind of like, you know, trying to intimidate me. <laughs> and I said, without missing a beat, uh, I'm going to be a soloist one day. And for now, I need a you know major job, but I'm learning how to play. And I'm quite happy, right? We were both tenured at the time. Uh, but I was just trying to, you know, we had the flute convention coming. We had all these things going on. I wanted to do Kobe, right? I was doing all these things. And this person was just saying, why aren't, what's, what's up with you, Porter? So I just felt like even more inspired to get myself going. And traction after eight years got me to thinking beyond the orchestra and into all the things that I could possibly do with my future. Did you have a moment like that in in the Atlanta Symphony where somebody said, you know, hey, kid, what are you doing sitting there? And you thought to yourself, this is my life. Hello. Did you have a moment like that? I don't know if I had a moment like that, but to your, you know, to your story about perhaps a, a negative energy or someone making a comment about what your, your vision is. This is where I just am so grateful for having you in my life because you're such a source of inspiration. It's your vision has been so strong from the very beginning and you've been unwavering about it. And that is just so inspiring for everybody around you. For me, my vision has always been to play in a great orchestra. As you said earlier, that's that's what I've always known I wanted to do. I was that kid who put on a CD of the Cleveland Orchestra playing all the Beethoven symphonies and tried to play through the first flute parts along with the orchestra without the music. You know, like I, I was that kid because that was my vision and my dream. So if there were detractors or whatever, and we know as musicians there's always going to be detractors or people who make us nervous or whatever. And that's based on their own place where they are in their lives or their career or their own insecurities. But if, if you have this really strong vision, which you have so strongly and I do, it's kind of what's kept me going. And I just, you know, shove it out of the way and keep going on my path. So, Christina, I teach this about orchestra, and I want you to back me up. When you have an orchestra job, you have three things to do. Show up, do your job, and leave. Showing up means prepared. I'm going to nail everything. I'm going to be a good colleague. I'm not going to bring in my arguments with my family <laughs> I've had an hour ago. I'm not going to worry, bring my worries in, right? I'm going to, not going to take up too much space. This is all the stuff I learned in Atlanta. I'm not going to put my stuff everywhere. I'm not going to be all boisterous. Do your job. That means don't talk a lot. Keep looking up, you know, um, be nice to your colleagues. Don't turn the page during their solos, things like that. All that etiquette stuff. Don't turn around, you know. And then third, leaving, that's super hard because leaving your job in the hall and not taking it home with you, maybe you want to live 30 minutes away so you can <laughs> detox from your job. Yes. 
I have, I live a 10 minute walk from my teaching. So I get to walk home. Um, that kind of thing, leaving the job is so important. So to have that separate quality life beyond the orchestra or beyond your teaching studio. So can you back me up here that doing, showing up on time. And if you're on time, you're, you're late showing up, doing your job and leaving. What do you say? Amen. Amen. Amy. I love the way you, you just couched that. That was perfect. And I think I would add to that, that in the showing up category, show up in a good state, you know, show up uh, with consciousness, show up with gratitude for what you have. You know, I find there's, there's two types of orchestral musicians. And the first type is, what can I get from this place? And the other type is, what can I give to this place? And always be that person, what can I give? Because all of us are such perfectionists, you know, high-level classical musicians. Does it get more perfectionist than that? So we tend to look at what's wrong. What are we missing? You know, uh, what's absent here? You know, why don't I have a better contract? You know, these things that, that orchestral musicians really obsess over. But I find that my favorite colleagues are the ones who come in in a great state. They show up in that state, right? And then... They're always asking, what can I give? What can I do to make this better? That's right. Thank you for reminding me of the culture changing in the Atlanta Symphony, because I only know what I know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I just have to give a shout out in heaven to Carl Hall. Uh, I, I was just thinking about him right before we started talking. Yeah, I'm giving I give him a shout out all the time. I mean, we, and we talk about him all the time. And you know, what's really funny is we have uh, our wonderful, amazing new piccolo player, Gina Hughes. She's absolutely fantastic. I feel like Carl sent her to us as a gift somehow. I love that. <laughs> but you know, she plays off of all of the ASO parts that have all of Carl's markings in them and some of the things that Carl wrote in the music she'll show us the part and we'll just burst out laughing because we remember why he wrote that that's right and he had his own little choreography for certain pieces and just I mean yeah Carl lives on for sure in the ASO he does he had Warren Little as his principal flutist (laughs) that's right You love old flutes. I do. Why? You had, you first told me, I thought Bonneville was a car. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> it's also a flute. And so why do you collect old Bonnevilles and Pels and acquire them and fix them up and then play them? Actually, the ones that I play on don't need much fixing up. They've, they've, they stay in really, really good shape. But I guess I started playing old flutes just within a couple of months of me beginning my job in Atlanta. So it was really a long time ago. And I had had an opportunity to buy this old silver Powell, 
which was made in 1938. And I just felt like it had a voice, a soul. It's, you know, we, there's a million different flutes out there for people to choose from. I always tell my students, try everything you can and find the one that's your voice. You know, I would never tell a student what to play on or to buy, but for me and the sound that I like and what I think I sound good on, I have an affinity for these old pals. And I think they sound really orchestral. And I guess when I was a kid, I grew up listening to the New York Philharmonic old recordings, old Philly orchestra recordings. And those players were playing old pals. You know, Julius Baker played an old pal in the New York Philharmonic for a good chunk of his time in the New York Phil. And and uh, I just like that sound. I had that sound in my ear and it resonates with me. For our listeners, define orchestral flute sound. Because you said it sounded well, orchestral. I guess my personal taste for orchestral flute playing is a sound that can come out when it's appropriate and be soloistic, but also a sound that can blend with the rest of the woodwind players. So when you play with the oboe, it sounds like one instrument. When you play with the bassoon, it sounds like one instrument. So it has the ability to create a unified tone color in blending with the first violins, with the cellos, with various other woodwind and brass. And to me, that's extremely important in orchestral playing for a first flutist, because really, I mean, I'm the principal player, so I play a lot of solos, but a lot of my job is just texture. You know, like I, I have to fit in. I have to know who I'm playing with. I have to be part of a more unified sound. So I don't subscribe to the philosophy that the flute should always be heard, you know, no matter what. You know, I think it's just so important to know the score, to know when you're important, when you're not, when to come out, when to blend. And so, you know, back to the old Powells, I feel like that's the instrument that I can achieve that with. Well, you blended so beautifully with the strings. I just remember that was so hard for me. And you were a flobo and a flassoon. Flassoon. <laughs> I love that word. <laughs> I have used the head joint of that Bonville. So uh, I'm saying it wrong. Don't say the E, just say Bonville. Bonville. I've, I've heard it both ways. I, I think a lot of people say Bonneville. Okay. But I but technically it's probably like Bonneville. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those who speak French, because of course it's French. But um, yeah, I that is sitting in my studio right now. It needs a lot of work done on it. So it's not in play right now. The flute that I'm really playing most of the time today is a 14 karat white gold Powell made in 1950. It's serial number 900. And oh. Vern Powell really saved the 00 serial numbers for the special flutes that he made, right? So he only made one handmade flute out of white gold because he later reported that after making the flute, the metal is so hard with white gold that it broke all the tools in his shop. So he never made another one, but then he did refer to this flute as his masterpiece. And it's one of these flutes where like I walk into the NFA convention and the flute makers come over to me and they're like, 
do you have the flute? <laughs> like they, they know, people know about this flute because it was, um, you know, Powell, who was such a genius craftsman himself, referred to this flute as his masterpiece for, for a number of reasons. And it's very, very beautiful. That's what I've had the great fortune to play on for the last, uh, maybe six years. And I also have a beautiful handmade platinum Powell that has a one piece body that used to be Joseph Mariano's flutes. So, the, so those are the two flutes that I play all the time, but all the flutes that I play on professionally were handmade by Vern Powell. Incredible. Incredible. You're the first call when something goes on sale. Call Christina, <laughs> Smith. Call Christina Smith. I don't know if I'm collecting anymore. I actually wasn't really looking when either the platinum or the white gold came my way, but then it just, you know, sometimes vibrations happen and it seems like it's the right choice to make. That's right. Oh, the law of attraction is everything for sure. Is that your holy grail of flutes? I think so. I think the white gold Powell number 900 is probably my holy grail. I do. I play it every single day, really. I love that. Yeah. I got to play the CPE Bach concerto with Nick McGeegan. Oh, I remember. Oh, he was just so kind and vivacious. And he said at the end, you are a very good flautist. And uh, coming from a Brit, you know, I was just like, I love that guy. That was one of my favorite moments. Yeah. And and a compliment coming from a flautist himself. I know. (laughs) Tell me some of your favorite conductors to play under. Let's see. I, of course, would say Robert Shaw, as you would. Um, Anybody who played under Robert Shaw, I think, would recognize that that was a had pivotal moments, perhaps. That's right. It was not stick tech. It was not stick technique. <laughs> no, it was just all music, right? That's right. When he wanted everyone to play more, he would back up and he'd hold his hands out from his side and just back up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I I do remember that. I remember he did that during one point in the Brahms Requiem and he said, this should sound like Christ of the Andes, you know, and you have this <laughs> image of that that huge statue in Brazil, you know, just, just really, really amazing. So Robert Shaw is definitely on that list for me. I would say Donald Runnicles is one of my absolute all time favorites, just Uh. amazing musician. And 
he's one of those conductors that even if I don't know he is on the podium, like if I'm standing backstage and I don't know who's conducting, I can listen to the orchestra for one minute and say, oh, Donald is here, you know, because he really changes the, the, the sound of uh-huh. the orchestra. Um, what does that mean? Balance? Balance. It means balance, color, identifying what's important and what is not and changing soundscape of the orchestra for various repertoire. He is absolutely phenomenal. I just think he's wonderful. I've loved playing for Robert Spano as well. I feel like for the last 20 years, he's the thing I like about him is that he really trusts the musicians. And he trusts that whatever you do out there is going to be great. And you know what you're doing. So kind of the opposite of what we, you and I had, right? That's when right. we began our career in Atlanta. Um, so I've been so grateful to have Robert because he really has kind of opened me up. And I can play Brahms fourth a different way every night and he'll give me a thumbs up, you know, like he's just very, very supportive. He really understands the orchestra. He understands what's difficult about playing every instrument and he makes it easy to play. He's just, and he's an absolute genius, just brain wise. I mean, the guy is amazing. And yeah, we've had a lot of great, we have great guest conductors come through Atlanta. Um, I got to play with Ricardo Muti when I was playing as a guest in the Chicago Symphony and absolutely one of the great musicians of all time and conductors of all time. That was very, very memorable. And I'll say I'm very excited about the next era with Natalie Stutzmann. She's a not a very experienced conductor, but she is such a profound musician that you can't not jump on the the train that she wants you to jump on. <laughs> what can I give? She's what can a- I give? And, yeah. and also, what can I learn? I yeah. got so much more to learn, you know, and I want to learn from her. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I remember the guest artists well because I was always watching them. And I was always watching guest artists about how they walked on stage and how they did that night and how they treated me. And there's some stories about guest artists. Do you remember the night we opened the backstage door and there was a wall and it was erected to divide the backstage? I don't know why. It was just this enormous plywood wall and it went on all the way through to the stairs. And I think it even might've been, there might've been a rope going down both sets of stairs. And I just threw my hands in the air and said, what on earth is this? And the stagehand said, that's Kathleen Battle's wall. She doesn't want anyone to see her. And I said, I don't care. This is, <laughs> this is terrible. This isn't fading my stuff. I threw a fit at Kathleen Battle's wall. <laughs> I, I think I was off for that concert, <laughs> but... I remember that that happened, and that was so outrageous, wasn't it? Then there was the night that I had to play Pops at Chastain Park, smelling barbecue chicken, 
and you, <laughs> you were on the show because I got flute four and it was Led Zeppelin laser light show. And the conductor <laughs> was someone who had been in Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull. His name, I think, was David Palmer, but I'm not sure. I don't oh, know. You're right. I think okay. you're right. Okay. So David yeah. Palmer. So we play Living in the Past by Jethro Tull. Ba, 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 do, do. And I know that because I'm six years younger than you. So I'm like living in the 70s. And there's my Jethro Tull. And so I play it in the rehearsal and he's smiling and I'm playing Living in the Past on flute four and I'm jamming out and everybody, of course, in the Atlanta symphony's rolling their eyes. Porter's like having a moment over there. <laughs> so at intermission, he goes out to have a fag, which if you don't know, is a cigarette. And he says, you know, I'm going to play that tonight. And I said, what? He said, no, living in the past, I'm going to play that on the flute. And I said, oh, you are? And he goes, yeah, you want to play it with me? Oh, and I said, right. I said, are you kidding me? He goes, right, just come on up. So that night, Christina, I wore a black leather mini skirt. <laughs> I, I probably about this. Oh my I, God. I had the highest heels ever. And <laughs> when that thing came up, you know, you know, I walked strutted out there. Of course, everyone in the ASO is rolling their eyes. <laughs> Here comes Porter at the front of the stage. And guess what I did? I stood on one leg. It was the most I've ever been applauded in my life. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thousands of people for Porter in her miniskirt. <laughs> those were the good old days, right? <laughs> Weren't they, though? <laughs> yes. One more favorite guest artist time was, now that I am the age she was when she performed with us, Alicia De La Rocha. She would be grace personified. I absolutely remember every performance she did with the ASO and it was just sublime. The level, of, as we know, the level of soloist just gets better and better. The level of orchestral player just gets better and better and better. And it's exciting to hear what people are able to do, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think I could not have gone all the way to the end of the Kobe competition without having the discipline of this job in the Atlanta symphony. If I had just been on my own and just trying to wing it, you know, Paula peace, I have a shout out to her for, uh, for being rock solid with me through the whole time. And you for standing by me while I just ran off to Japan and, and said, Amy Porter comma soloist is going off. <laughs> leaving the Atlanta symphony, but it was, it was a moment in my life where I had to see if I was any good. I had to remember who I was. I was losing my, my soul in the orchestra and people always ask me, why would you leave a major symphony? And I said, it's because my heart wasn't singing. I looked up at the lights one time at a Christmas show and just said, God, get me out of here. So and now look at what well, you're able to do. And by the way, one of one memory I have of us is being at Paula's octagon and and sitting and listening to you guys play your whole Kobe program, um, just for the practice of doing it, and how inspired I was to hear the work that you'd done. And then, of course, you had this tremendous success. That that was a that was a great memory for me. Thank you just for being 
an incredibly magnanimous colleague and girlfriend. I want to touch on one more person, if I may, who's been incredibly influential in your life, Keith Underwood. Yes. I've, I have had such amazing teachers in my life. Keith is probably the teacher that I have had for the longest time because I met Keith when I was in my late teens and started working with him pretty regularly as a teacher, a coach. He helped me so much on all of my orchestral excerpts. He helped me um, even since I've been playing in the Atlanta Symphony. I still play for Keith. I've played for him routinely the entire time that I've had my job. I mean, I don't know if I really would have gotten a job without knowing a lot of the techniques that Keith has taught me and also been able to keep playing at a high level without injury and things like that. If I hadn't, if I hadn't met Keith and worked with him, I think he's just a phenomenal mind and a phenomenal person. He's an amazing problem solver and he's also totally hilarious. It's like going Absolutely. to, yeah, he's like flute stand up comedian, <laughs> right? When you right. go to one of his classes, I really love watching Keith, teach other people as well. That is something that I always learn from, whether it's something just for myself, you know, Keith can be teaching an 11 year old kid and I, and I watch him teach and I'm like, Oh yeah, I do that. Oh yeah, I do that too. Oh yeah, I do that too. You know, like I'm learning, but I'm also learning, you know, these very alternative ways to interact with various students who are facing different kinds of problems, you know, and that has been, such a joy and I'm so so grateful that I've had Keith in my life well you would sneak from Philadelphia to go to New York I did I used and then to, you used to do that I'm telling everybody <laughs> <laughs> I did I used to go to New York periodically when I was studying in Philadelphia just to have a kind of a translation sometimes of what I was learning from Julius Baker, <laughs> you know, just like, um, you know, because uh, Julius Baker was one of the great, great, great players of the 20th century, undoubtedly. Um, but in my lessons, you know, I, I say, Mr. Baker, you know, how do I make my vibrato like this or like yours? And he just say, practice, just practice, because he was such an amazing natural player that I literally think that's what he did. You know, he just practiced hours and hours every day. I don't know if he ever had to problem solve. I mean, I really think he was someone that was born with a flute in his hand. I just yes. I still think his playing is just so absolutely beautiful. 
Um, but Keith really helped me. Like he's like, oh, you know, if you want to do this with your vibrato, make sure your your head is in this position and your flute is a little more like this, and you're thinking about these muscles here. And I'm like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So you know, Keith is like an absolute genius in that department. It's Hidden Valley Music Seminars. It's a retreat center near Carmel. Yes, I've taught there one time and I loved it. Yeah, isn't it gorgeous? And Keith has been pretty regularly teaching there for a number of years. And um, I have followed Keith there. I've followed Keith to Hawaii. I've followed Keith to Italy. And I still really enjoy watching his work. He's, he's done a lot more work online since the pandemic started. And I watch just about everything that he does because I always learn something. Keith does these really interesting uh, podcasts called Flute Conversations. Okay. And a, a wonderful Israeli flutist named Hadar Neuberg, who has studied extensively with Keith. And they do these interviews and they talk for an hour or an hour and a half about various topics. In fact, he did one last week called All About the Jaw. And he talks about jaw position and flute playing for like an hour, over an hour. And it's so edifying. I mean, it's just wonderful. So that's a great series. And then you can also find a lot of Keith's work on LessonFace.com which I think is a platform for mainly New York artists to teach online and do instructional things online. So he, he does a lot of things on Lesson Face and you can subscribe to various series on that platform. The one lesson I had with him uh, was the best $100 I ever spent in my life. <laughs> I was in my early 30s and I moved the flute down on my face. Oh, I love that. I've done that too. Isn't that great? Like he introduced me to my bottom lip. I love that. Yeah. The lip is like our oboe read, right? It's right. Long like, read or short read. Get a long yeah. read. And it's not like, <laughs> it's not like we don't have our read problems, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's so great to like, play, as Keith says, like he says, feel like you're blowing from farther away from the flute and then the flute kind of vibrates more. Yes. And that's a certain level of trust that a young person who is trying to get immediate gratification can't get. Oh, that's right. And just like with any growth uh, for ourselves as artists, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable for a while. That's right. When I switched from Muramatsu after 36 years to a Haynes, it was a year. Everything was new. Every single excerpt, every single piece concerto was new. I laughed so hard for a whole year. <laughs> and that's what I love about you. You laugh about that. Yeah, that for sure. Good. What am I going to do? Cry? I mean, you know, oh. make it worse? No. So you used to have a postcard of Northern California on your stand at times. So I know that you wanted to go to live one day in Northern California. So I want to know if any of that has happened. But you also, we would have a joke. We would say, Christina's going to make Amy's dresses. I don't know if you remember oh, that. But I you, do. I you, do. You sew like a mad woman. You sew your own gowns. You sew all this stuff. And you were going to be like, 
I'm going to retire to Northern California and make your gowns. And I was like, this is it. That's it. Are, are we still going to do that? <laughs> I love, I love that vision. And of course, since you and I work together here, I have had two wonderful daughters. And so I've had to put my dressmaking a little bit on the back burner, but I have made various things for my girls, you know, like Halloween costumes and things like that. So I don't have a lot of time to do dressmaking anymore, but I really want to get back into it. So now my older girl's going to college next year, and then I've got one more. But um, I love how you remember that I had a postcard of Northern California on my music stand because that's definitely my happy place. It's my home. Uh, it's where my family is. And um, I used to have that on my music stand just to be just to have a calming influence on stage, but I still do feel most at home on the West coast of the United States. And I have been doing a music festival in Bellingham, Washington for over 25 years and forever you've been there. Yeah. And in fact, got married there and, um, my husband and I have been so grateful that we were able to purchase a house there, a little house. There's no oh, new, but it's, <laughs> we really love the community there and yeah. perhaps hope to retire out there on the West coast at some point. There you have it. Then and now. Then and now. Shall we tell them why we call each other May? <laughs> well, I, I think I remember the story, but oh. I won't. I know exactly what happened. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. So you were from California and very new to the Southern accent. <laughs> so we would go to the receptions <laughs> and the parties. And you thought it was funny that people had the middle name of May. So you, you became Christina May. <laughs> and sometimes it was Stina May. Well, on a very opposite occasion, a colleague was reading, and who does this? But they were reading the change of address forms in the union paper. And the union paper had gotten my name when I bought my house in Mayretta. <laughs> when I bought my house, the union paper put my name as M-A-Y. <laughs> and so our colleague didn't miss a beat. I walked into work and he said, May Porter. I love it. And yes, that is true. All of that, all of the above is true. <laughs> Who's the loser who reads the change of address? <laughs> I, I know. And so then I became Stina May or just May. And now you and I just call each other May. And you're M-A-E and I'm M-A-Y. And I could not think of a better like love note for friendship than that, right? <laughs> no, no. It harkens back to our days in the South together. <laughs> well, we should tell everybody that when we started the Zoom, we both screamed May at the top of our lungs. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> oh, May, I love you so much. I love you too. And thank you so much for having me. And I'm so grateful for you in my life. Well, thank you, honey. We are bonded together forever. Yes, we are. Thanks for being in Porter Flute Pod. Thank you so much. I'm not crying. You're crying. 
What a sweet time together with you, Christina. I hold our time growing up together as musicians as a very formative time. We hold a very deep bond and I couldn't have done it without your unwavering trust. Join us next time on Porter Flute Pod. I'm going to host another friend cast, this time with my very first chamber music partner, Tomas George Caracas Garcia, ethnomusicologist and musicologist, guitarist and lutenist, and he's professor of ethnomusicology and Latin American studies at Miami University in Ohio. You can find me at my websites, amyporter.com and porterflute.com, and on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I'm Porter Flute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.